Jesus is the light. He opens the darkness of men's minds to the truth. The truth about themselves, the truth about sin, the truth about God, the truth about how to become right with God. Jesus put the light on display. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Power of Your Influence. He has part three for you on today's broadcast. Tom will continue to explore Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So far, you've discovered how Christ calls his followers to be salt in the earth, a preserving influence, one that battles the moral and spiritual decay all around you, simply by being who you are in Christ. Well, today you'll learn about Jesus' second analogy about influence, light. And Tom, throughout this chapter, Jesus uses a lot of analogies, including salt and light. Could you explain the purpose of biblical analogies? You know, Bill, it's such a brilliant thing on the part of the Holy Spirit to do, and that is to connect what's hard for us to understand in the spiritual world with what is easy for us to understand because it's a part of our everyday physical lives. And that's how it is with these wonderful analogies of salt and light. You'll never look at a salt shaker again or turn on the light again without being reminded of the power of your influence in the world. And that's what Scripture so often does. It connects what we know with what we need to know to make a lasting impression in our minds. And that's certainly true of this great passage. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now and let's join our teacher with today's message on The Word Unleashed. I began last time by reminding you that when God created the moral universe, he created laws that accompanied that moral universe as well as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe. One of those laws is the law of influence. God determined that others would be able to influence us in various ways and that we in turn would be able to have the power of influence on the lives of others. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses two familiar images, images that are present in every home in every age, and that is the images of salt and light, in order to describe the power of our influence as Christians. Let me read this text for you again. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Jesus' point in that brief paragraph is to simply say to us, if you belong to my spiritual kingdom, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, then God has given you a powerful influence in the world around you. Jesus provides two illustrations of the power of that influence, both of which are taken from everyday life. He tells us that we are the salt of the earth. The primary use of salt in the ancient world was as a preservative. It kept meat from rotting and decaying. Jesus calls us as his followers salt to show the power of the preserving influence we have in the world. We combat the moral and spiritual decay all around us. Simply by being in the world and by being who we are in Christ in the world. If we live out the character of a believer as described in the Beatitudes, and if we live out the commands in the rest of the sermon, whether we like it or not, we'll be salt. Because it will be completely contrary to the world around us. Today we come to the second illustration Jesus uses in verses 14 to 16. And here Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. The Old Testament described the world of humanity, not the physical planet on which we live, although it's been affected by sin as well, but the world of humanity, the world of people, as a world of darkness. And into that dark world, in the Old Testament, God promised that he would send a special servant. And that servant would both be light and bring light into the dark world in which we live. In Isaiah 9, and he said to Galilee, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That was God promising that on the nation Israel, the Messiah would bring light. But much more than that, the Messiah came to bring light for the nations of the world. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says of the Messiah, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Messiah came into a world characterized by, shrouded in, covered in complete and total darkness. And he came to bring the light of God to his own people that he'd chosen through Abraham, as well as to all the nations of the world. The light's coming. That was God's promise. And to make sure that the people never forgot that the light was coming, God provided an unforgettable picture in an annual ceremony that was at one of the required feasts of Israel. At the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's sometimes called, or the Feast of Booths, as it occurs in our New American Standard translation, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It was the third of the three great annual feasts God required every Hebrew man to attend in Jerusalem. It was in October, just five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It lasted for seven days. And the Feast of Tabernacles was 
two things really. It was a celebration of the harvest. By that time in October, all of the harvesting had been done by the people of Israel in that land. So it was a celebration of that reality, but it was also a commemoration of something in their history. It was a commemoration of God's care during the wilderness wandering after the exodus to remind the people of the journey from Egypt to the promised land God demanded that during the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is why it was called this, or booths, they were required to actually build little booths, little huts, if you will, made out of the limbs of living trees. And for that week, for those seven days, they were required to live in those booths or in those lean-tos. It was sort of a national campout, if you will. I'm glad I wasn't there for that, actually. Sheila and I have often said we want our children to have the camping experience and we're still looking for someone to give it to them. (laughs) It was during that feast that this unique ceremony took place. Jesus experienced it. From the time Jesus was 12 years old and first attended the feast until he preached the sermon early in his ministry, Jesus would have gone to that October required Feast of Tabernacles, and there he would have witnessed annually this ceremony for almost 20 years of his life. It would have been seared in his own memory as well as in the memory of all those who listened to this sermon. Because if you had seen this ceremony at Herod's temple, witnesses tell us you would never have forgotten it. Herod's temple alone was magnificent and hard to forget. By the time of Jesus' ministry, they had been working on it for nearly 50 years. Herod had created a huge raised platform for the entire temple area. Josephus describes this platform that you see as about 400 yards long, four football fields long by 330 yards wide, or almost three and a half football fields wide. It was massive. It was about an, an area of about 35 acres on the top of this Temple Mount area. Huge areas for the people of Israel together. These courtyards surrounded by beautiful arched balustrades. But the focal point in the center of that massive platform was the temple proper, a building. At the front of that building, if you looked at just the front of that temple building itself that was in the middle of that huge platform, the front of it was 150 feet high by 150 feet wide. That's 50 yards wide, 50 yards high. It was massive. If you had walked inside the front door of the temple itself, you would have entered into what was called the holy place where the priests ministered daily. At the back of that room called the Holy Place, you would have seen a massive curtain. They tell us was four inches thick. Took some two to three hundred priests to handle. Through that curtain was a small room that was a perfect cube. Thirty feet by thirty feet by thirty feet. That was the Holy of Holies. That represented the throne room of God. It was accessible by only one man, once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. 
But if you had gone back out of the holy place to the porch there and looked out over the rest of the temple area, you would have seen leading down from the porch of the temple itself 12 steps. They led down to a bronze altar surrounded by the court of the priests where only the priests of Israel could go. On that same level and surrounding the court of the priests was what was called the court of Israel. That's where Jewish men could go and were allowed to enter. There was an 18-inch high stone wall on the same level separating the men of Israel from the court of the priest where they were not allowed to go. But they were on the same level. From the court of Israel, you pass through this magnificent gate called the gate of Nicanor. And as you pass through that gate, you would begin to step down 15 more steps to reach what was called the court of the women. This was a huge square where Jewish women were allowed to worship. Standing inside the court of the women, there were four massive candelabra. Each of those four candelabra stood 86 feet high, some 30 yards high. At the top of them, each had a bowl that they tell us, Josephus tells us, held 17 gallons of oil. Projecting out of that oil were massive wicks. These wicks were typically made by the old clothes of the priest, twisted and soaked in oil. It's likely that these four great candelabra were lighted every evening as part of the normal routine of the temple service. But there was one very special celebration once a year that included them. It happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. We know this special ceremony happened on the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, and a reliable Jewish source tells us it happened every night, all six nights. You see, on the face of each of those four candelabra was a ladder that spanned the entire height of 86 feet. And in the evening, as dark approached, Young, healthy priests, and those not afraid of heights, obviously, uh, would climb those 86-feet candelabra with oil, probably having to make several trips. They would pour the equivalent of 17 gallons of oil into each of those massive bowls sitting at the top of each candelabrum. On those special nights... The entire Temple Mount would have been jammed with people. Perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, according to many historians' reports. All eagerly watching as the priests climbed those massive candelabra, poured the oil into the bowls, and then, as each of them were poised and ready, simultaneously lighting the wicks in each candelabrum, and massive flames would leap into the sky. Eyewitnesses tell us that when those lamps were lit, their light not only illumined the the temple courts, but the entire city of Jerusalem. After the lamps were lighted during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish Mishnah tells us 
Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music. It was a massive celebration. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have stood there in the darkness of the first century, homes lighted with little oil lamps, and suddenly into the blackness of the night burst these massive flames lighting up the entire city and the hillsides nearby. Now with that background, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or of tabernacles was near. So we're, we're in October. It's almost time for this celebration. Therefore, his brothers, these are his physical brothers. Scripture tells us in Mark's gospel that Jesus had four brothers. And his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go up at this time. Having said these things to them, verse 9, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, remember now we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So, of course, you know what happened. The Jews were seeking him at the feast. were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now watch verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. During that seven-day Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus goes on to that massive temple mount, that 35 acres. He finds a place with tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people around, and he begins to teach. Now look at verse 37. Just to orient you as to time frame, verse 37 says, Now on the last day... The great day of the feast. So now we're on day seven of that feast. And the rest of chapter seven is in that same time frame. We're still on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now notice verse 53 of chapter seven begins with a bracket. And that bracket runs all the way down to the end of verse 11 of chapter eight. Do you see the bracket that ends at the end of verse 11? That's because, if you were to look at the marginal reference, that's because the early manuscripts don't contain this story. The earliest manuscripts don't contain them at all, and those manuscripts that do contain the story put it at various places. Some put it at the end of the Gospel of John, other places, some put it here. 
So probably this story was not originally in this place. There is reason to believe it's an authentic story. We'll deal with that on another occasion, but not here. So regardless, though, what I want you to see is when you come to chapter 8, verse 12, we're still in the same time frame. It's still the last day of tabernacles. The last day of the feast. Now what had happened the night before? The night before would have been the last ceremonial lighting of those massive candelabras filling the night sky with their flames. And Jesus was standing next to them. Look down at verse 20 of chapter 8. Verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was where the money was collected. The treasury was in the court of the women right next to those massive candelabra. So Jesus is standing in the middle of those candelabras. Perhaps there are There are little flames still flickering from the top of them from the previous night's ceremony. We don't know. But that's the context in which he makes a most remarkable statement about himself. Go back to chapter 8, verse 12. He's standing there the day after those massive candelabra were lighted with great ceremony. He's standing in the middle of them, and he says this, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a shocking statement, really. Imagine anyone else saying that. Imagine if some other person, imagine if I said to you this morning, I and I alone am the light of the entire world. What exactly was Jesus claiming for himself in this great statement? Jesus was making four remarkable claims. Let's look at them together. The first claim he was making is that the entire world lives in perpetual darkness. The entire world lives in perpetual darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The clear implication behind that statement is that the world and the people who live in it are in darkness. There's light and there's darkness. Jesus says, I'm the light, everything else is darkness. Now what does he mean by that? Well, in Scripture, especially in John's writings, light is used in two ways. There is the light of truth as opposed to the darkness of error and ignorance. And there is secondly, the light of moral purity as opposed to the darkness of sin. So you have the light of truth versus the darkness of error and ignorance. And you have the light of moral purity versus the darkness of sin. The absence of purity. What is Jesus saying? Well, obviously Jesus is saying something about himself. And we're going to get to that in the next claim that we're going to cover together. But first, Jesus is saying something about us. He's saying something about the world of humanity. He is saying, when he says he is the light, that the entire world and every individual in it lives in a state of blindness and ignorance and error. We are disconnected from the truth. We live our lives either in ignorance or in error. 
Jesus was also saying that the entire world and every single person in it lives in a state of sin, the absence of moral purity. You see, Jesus wasn't just making a statement about himself. He was making a statement about us. He was, in essence, in this great statement, teaching what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. That doesn't mean every sinner is as bad as he or she could be. That's not true, thank God, because of the restraining influences he's placed in the culture around us and even the conscience he's placed within our own hearts. But what it does mean is that we are affected in the totality of our being by sin. There is no part of who you are or who I am that has not been affected by the darkness of sin. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Power of Your Influence. And Tom will bring you part four next time as he once again takes us to God's Word. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.